Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The word of the Lord. Well, we live in a world of stories. Some of them are inconsequential stories, uh, but others of them are ultimate stories of ultimate significance. Let me uh, share an example of one with you from the ancient world. Here's how one historian writes about this particular story. He says, some will have heard before of the child born in the Roman Empire over 2,000 years ago who would change the course of history. As this child grew, his charisma and power would command the loyalty of countless thousands. By the time he was in his 30s, he would be seen as the fulfillment of national hopes and the founder of an endless kingdom. His achievements would be considered miraculous, signs of divine authority, particularly the way he established peace in a period marked by chaos. So significant was this man's entry into history that official proclamations known as gospels were published throughout the world in his honor. One such proclamation was inscribed on stone and uncovered on the coast of Turkey. It describes how the governor of the region decreed that the year of this savior's birth was henceforth known as year one of a whole new calendar system. The inscription reads thus, God sent him as a savior for us to make war to cease, to create peaceful order everywhere. And the birthday of this God was the beginning for the world of gospels that have come to people through him. So I, Paulus Fabius Maximus, proconsul of the province of Asia, have devised a way of honoring him, namely, that the reckoning of time for the course of human life should begin with the year of his birth. Now, who's this story about? It's about Caesar Augustus, first emperor of the Roman Empire. And all of the language used to describe him, son of God, savior, kingdoms, peace, gospels that proclaim his birth, all of that was language that, that Rome used to talk about the emperor, much the same way that we use language like commander in chief or state of the union. Uh, it means something specific. So when the first Christians used this language to tell the story of Jesus, it was a direct challenge to the story of Rome. But it wasn't just saying that story is false. It was deeper than that. Really, it was more wonderful than that. The gospel invites us to look at the Caesar story and really all stories and to see not just what about those stories is false, 
But what about those stories is true? What about those stories is good? Um, What aches, what longings, what yearnings are crying out for resolution in those stories, but the stories themselves don't have the power to fulfill? They never did, but they do point to the one story that can. The gospel story invites us all to, to look at all of the stories in the world because all stories in the world, in one way or another, they're all saying to us, in a world that feels like everything is falling apart, we long for justice. We long for peace. We long for flourishing. We long for a new world, a better world, a perfect world. We all long for that. The question is, is there a story, a real story, that can make good on its promises to fulfill the deepest longings for that world? We are in a series on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians. And last week, we uh, saw that the gospel of Jesus presents itself as the real story of everything. And I promised you last week that this week we were going to look at that story in more detail. The gospel of Jesus presents itself as the real story of everything. Now, that's a lofty claim. Some of you might think it's a preposterous claim, maybe even a dangerous claim. And I certainly can't prove that this story is the one true real story of everything, but no worldview can be proven beyond a doubt. The best we can do is ask the question, which story makes sense of the world that we experience? That's what we can do. But listen, you can't embrace Christianity. You can't embrace the Christian story or reject it without understanding what's actually being claimed. This is one of the most famous passages in the whole Bible. In in six of the most beautiful verses ever written, Paul gives us, really it's a poem, about the one real story of everything, and it's the story of Jesus. Jesus is not just a character in this story. Jesus is the story. So let's look at this story in three parts this morning. We're going to see the God who creates, the world he creates, and the peace he makes. Okay? The God who creates, the world he creates, and the peace he makes. First, the God who creates. This story begins with God. It says, he, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. So Jesus reveals God to us if he, because he's God in human flesh. If you want to know who God is, what God is, uh, Paul is saying, look at Jesus. That means that, that God exists, that God Uh, wants to be known, has made himself known. It means this God is a personal God, a rational God, a loving God, because he cares so much about this world that he would enter into it to be with us. We could spend the rest of the sermon just talking about that, but let's take it one step further. Not only does Jesus reveal God to us, but Jesus reveals us to us. Because when it says he is the image of the invisible God, Paul's taking us back to Genesis 1, which says that God created human beings in his image. That means that that Jesus shows us what true humanity is. Jesus shows us what perfect humanity is. Jesus shows us what we're meant for. Now, here's why this is so important for us. What does it mean to say that God created human beings in his image and designed them for a purpose? Well, Let's get at that question by asking it from the opposite side. In other words, what if there is no God? What if we're not created? One of the most famous philosophers in the 20th century was an atheist existentialist named Jean-Paul Sartre. 
right after World War II, he gave a lecture called Existentialism is a Humanism. And I'm paraphrasing him just a little bit, but at the beginning of this lecture, he says, if you look at something manufactured like a pen knife, a paper knife, you can see it's made for a purpose. If God created human beings, then he created them with a specific purpose in mind. But in the 18th century, we got rid of God, but we kept the idea that human beings are created for a purpose. Atheistic existentialism, of which I, Jean-Paul Sartre, am a representative, declares with greater consistency that if God does not exist, then human beings have no purpose. There can no longer be any good a priori, which means before the fact, there, because there is no God to think it. It is nowhere written that the good exists, that one must be honest or must not lie, since we are now in the plane where there is no God, only humans. As Dostoevsky wrote, if God does not exist, everything is permitted. Now, what does that mean? It means if there is no God, then every human being is now free to create their own meaning and purpose. That is one of the most potent narratives in our culture. It says, no one else can tell you who you are. It says, you have to determine that for yourself. You're the one who has to discover and express your authentic self. No one else can tell you who you are. That narrative is so woven into our culture that we wouldn't even dream of disputing that. And by the way, consumerism is a very powerful carrier of that story, isn't it? Because consumerism says to each one of us, hey, you're the one who decides what's best for you. You're the one who has to find the right products, figure out the best services that help you fulfill a meaning and a purpose that you define for yourselves. Now, here's what's good about all of this. Like I said, every story, it's not just looking at the stories and saying, what about those stories is false? What about those stories is good? What about those stories are true? Our modern secular narratives put a lot of emphasis on the, the individual dignity and the supreme worth and value of every individual human being. Genesis 1 affirms that. In fact, it's the very source of it. But here's the problem, and Sartre points it out in his lecture. If there is no God, then there is no good. There is no right and wrong. There is no individual human rights. There is no dignity. There's none of that. Those are, those are words that we use to describe maybe a genetic code that produces chemical reactions in our brain or a word that we use to describe the social constructions that describe our subjective preferences, but chemical reactions and subjective preferences are not facts. I love the way our dear friend Frederick Nietzsche puts it in his little book, Beyond Good and Evil. He said, there are no moral facts. He was an atheist. He said, there are no moral facts. There are only moral interpretations of facts. If there is no God, then all of our talk about rights and dignity is just an illusion. So, for instance, Oliver Wendell Holmes was one of the greatest Supreme Court justices. Uh, in a letter to a friend once, he wrote this, uh, and he didn't believe in God either. He said, when one thinks coldly, I see no reason for attributing to human beings a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. Now, he wasn't being heartless. He was just being intellectually consistent with his worldview. If there is no God, then there is no good. There is no right and wrong. There is no basis for human rights and individual dignity. 
We can construct those things legally and socially, but they don't exist, not objectively, certainly not in the way we experience them as binding, as inescapable. If there is no God, then we're not made for anything like a penknife. And we can't say, how can you say what's good or harmful for people if people aren't for anything? You see, now we could say, well, just don't kill people. Live and let live. Okay, but doesn't evolution tell us that it's all about the survival of the fittest? Isn't it all about the strong eating the weak? You know, it doesn't bother us when animals devour each other. Why human beings? Isn't it just part of the, you know, the circle of life? So, hey, hakuna matata. No. If there is a God, there is a basis for right and wrong. There is a basis for human rights and for individual dignity. There's a basis for all of that, and the Bible affirms that. The Bible would say to you, your longings for that is right. It's good. I talk to a lot of people and frequently hear people say, look, I don't need to believe in God to be a good person, and that's right. The Bible actually agrees with you. Read Romans chapter 2. You don't need to believe in God to be a good person. You do need for there to be a God in order for there to be a good to be known. Friends, every single one of us is living by a story. We're, We're giving our life to a story of the world, and every story of the world is telling us about the way things really are. If there is a God then we do have a basis for human rights and dignity and, um, and worth and value of every human being. But if that's the case, then we are not free, as our modern narrative insists, we're not free just to determine our own meaning and purpose for ourselves. We're not free to just design our own lives, be our own person, define our own identity, define our own morality. That we're not free to do that. It means there is a design for us. There is something that we were made for. We do have a purpose. It's set for us. Jesus reveals God to us, but Jesus also reveals us to us. He shows us what we were designed for. He's the God who creates, and that's the first thing we see. But secondly, we also see the world he creates. Paul continues in verse 15. He says, He, Jesus, is the firstborn of all creation, for by him All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So God created the world through Jesus. But notice, um, not only were all things created through Jesus, all things were created for him, like a gift. You notice Paul says Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. That doesn't mean that Jesus is uh, the first of, of all created things. No, in the ancient world, firstborn is a way of talking about a status. The firstborn son has preeminent status over the household. The firstborn son was the one who got the whole inheritance. When Paul says Jesus is the firstborn of creation, he's saying he's the son. He's the one who has preeminent status over the household. He's the one who gets all of creation. It's a gift, and friends, gifts are good. Gifts are good. Once again, Paul is pointing us back to Genesis 1 and the creation of the world. And when you read Genesis 1, every time God creates something, it's like a refrain over and over and over again. It says, and God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. In fact, at the very end of the chapter, when everything is finished, it says, and God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. God created the world good, with an order 
and a harmony and a peace and a wholeness. And at the very end, it says that through Jesus, God is reconciling all things to himself. Now, here's the question. Think about that for a moment. If in the beginning, all things are good, all things are wonderful, all things were in harmony, but then at the very end, Paul's saying, all things need to be reconciled, then what happened? The biblical story tells us that there was a rebellion. There was an insurrection. Instead of living our lives according to God's design for our lives, we wanted to be the designers of our own lives. We wanted to be God of our own lives. And as a result, the whole world is falling apart so that we now live in a world in which everything feels like it's falling apart. We live in a world that feels like it needs reconciliation. We feel that deeply, don't we? Well, you know, one of the most primal, visceral experiences that we have as human beings in this world is that we experience this world as, as a place where things are not the way they're supposed to be. That's the way we experience the world. In fact, that happens to be one of the most powerful arguments against the existence of a loving, personal God. We look at all of the evil and the suffering in this world, and we say, how can a loving, personal God exist with all of this? Notice how we say it. Not just suffering, it's unjust suffering. Not just suffering, it's unjust suffering. How can a loving, personal God exist when there's so much evil and suffering, unjust suffering in this world? That is a powerful argument. We have to pay attention to that. We have to deal with that. But here's the question. Why do we feel that way? If this world is all there is, if there is no God, this world is all there is, then this world is already exactly the way it's supposed to be. Why does it bother us so much? Why do we say that there's this problem of evil and suffering? Why do we say that it's not just painful, but that it's wrong? One of the best examples of this comes from a wonderful book by Annie Dillard called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. Uh, In that book, Annie Dillard says she went to go live by a mountain creek because she wanted to get connected to the peace and the tranquility of nature. You know, ah, nature. And so she went out to the creek, and one morning she saw a frog sitting on the creek. And so she bent down to get a closer look. And while she was watching, the frog um, uh, just, uh, it it sank down into the river like it was being deflated like a a balloon. It just sank into the water. And she was like, what just happened? And she realized that she had just seen a giant water bug suck the insides of the frog out like a straw. Ah, nature. (laughs) She was horrified. But then she started to think about it, and she said, wait a minute. If this is just nature being nature, then why am I so horrified by this? And she realized that there were really only two alternatives. And here's how she puts it in the book, which, by the way, won a Pulitzer Prize. She says this, either this world is a monster or I am a freak. Consider the former. The universe is a monster programmed to kill. This view requires that a monstrous world running on chance and death somehow produced wonderful us. We little blobs of soft tissue are right, and the whole universe is wrong. Or, she says, consider the alternative. It seems to us that plenty is amiss. So much is amiss that I must consider the second fork in the road that creation itself is blamelessly, benevolently askew by its very free nature and that it is only human feeling that is freakishly amiss. 
Our excessive emotions are so painful and harmful to us as a species that I can hardly believe that they evolved. It would seem that emotions are the curse, not death. All right, then it is our emotions that are amiss. We're freaks. The world is fine. And let us all go have lobotomies to restore us to a natural state. We can go back to the creek, lobotomized, and live on its banks as untroubled as any muskrat or reed. You first. Do you hear what she's saying? If there is no God, and this world is all there is, then either an irrational, amoral universe somehow managed to produce rational, moral beings like you and me, or the universe is just fine. Evil and violence are perfectly natural, and it's just our feelings of injustice that are the mistake. Listen, friends, every single worldview comes with its own problem set. There is no such thing as a story of the world that doesn't have intellectual problems, doesn't have emotional problems. They all do. If there is a loving, personal God, then the presence in this world of real evil, real unjust suffering, that's a problem. And we have to deal with that. But think about it. Only if there is a loving, personal God can that problem remain on the table as a real problem, as an objective problem, not just a projection of our preferences, not just a description of the pain that we experience. Our lives in this world are filled with tragedy. The only way we get to name that is real is if there's a loving, personal God. Our lives are filled with tragedy. The pitiless storm is always banging at our door, threatening to, to burst it down and devour our lives. We long for a day, one day when all things would be put right. We long for a day, one day when all things would be reconciled. Does your view, your story of the world allow you to long for one day, a day like that? There was a very famous Japanese poet named Isa who lived a very tragic life. His mother died when he was just a toddler. All of his children died. Eventually his wife died. And the story goes that one time after his, um, one of his children died, he went to a great Zen Buddhist master, uh, master asking for help. And the Zen master said to him, you must remember that the world is like a dewdrop. As the sun rises, um, so the dew evaporates. In the same way, this world is like a dewdrop. Everything is eventually going to evaporate, so don't get too attached to it. Remember that the world is nothing but dew. And so Esau went home, he took that answer, and he wrote probably his most famous poem. This world is a dewdrop world, is a dewdrop world. And yet, and yet. You see, his story of the world says this world is dew, it's all evaporating, and yet in his heart he knew better. His heart knew, and yet, and yet, his heart longed for one day. Friends, every single one of us longs for a day when all things would be put right. We long for a day when all things would be reconciled. Which story makes sense of that longing? Which story gives us hope for that longing? We've seen the God who creates. We've seen the world he creates. But lastly, we need to see the peace he makes. Because at this point in the sermon, it's probably helpful to remember the reality that we live in a pluralistic culture. That means there are a lot of different stories out there. 
Atheism is one story. Um, different religions tell different stories. Different political ideologies tell different stories about the world we live in. What are Make America Great Again and the Green New Deal, but stories that are telling us what's wrong with the world and what the solution is. On top of that, postmodern thinkers over the last 40 years or so have told us that every story that claims to be the real story of everything is ultimately a power grab and results in oppression and violence and injustice in this world. And therefore, we should be very suspicious of any story that claims to be the real story of everything, which, of course, means that postmodernism is also a story of everything because it presents us a world in which oppression, violence, and injustice are real problems that need to be dealt with. Do you begin to see the difficulty here? Like I said at the beginning, I can't prove that the biblical story is the real story of everything. No worldview can be proven beyond a doubt, but we can ask which story makes best sense of the world? Which story affirms the goodness of material creation? Which story validates our longings for a better world? Which story actually gives us a hope for the world? And let's take the postmodern challenge seriously. Is there a story that has within it the resources to undo all of the forces of oppression and injustice and violence that are tearing the world apart? This story does because it's the story of Jesus. Who is Jesus? In verse 17, we read what is probably the, the most mind-boggling statement, I think, ever uttered in recorded history. Paul says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is before all things. That means Jesus stands outside of creation, apart from creation, as the cosmic king over all creation. But he also says, in him all things hold together. Jesus isn't just the king of creation. In some way, we can't comprehend. He's also the very fabric of creation. In him, all things hold together. That means that the more we bring our lives inside his kingship, the more our lives hold together. But the more we move away from Jesus, the more our lives fall apart. The more we move away from Jesus, the more we seek to live our lives according to our own design according to our own meaning and purpose, according to our own definition of, of identity and morality, the more we seek to live our lives like that, the more our lives fall apart. You know, we're at war with God. We're at war with ourselves. We're at war with each other. Don't you feel that battle inside of you? If you don't know the ways that your heart resists God, the ways you bristle against God, the ways that you re rebel and reject God, then the Bible says you don't know your own heart. We're at war with God, at war with ourselves. We're at war with each other. Don't you feel the battle? Don't you experience the tragedy of that? Where do all the oppression and the violence and the injustice in this world come from? In him, all things hold together. If there is nothing holding this world together, then all things are already falling apart. There's nothing we can do about it. But if in him all things hold together, how does he bring all things back together? How does Jesus reconcile the world? Verse 20 tells us. It says, through Jesus, God reconciles all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. Making peace by the blood of his cross. You know what that means? On the cross, the one who holds all things together was blown apart. 
All week I kept thinking about the end of the last Harry Potter movie when Harry kills the evil dark Lord Voldemort. Actually, he doesn't kill him. He, he disarms him. He takes away his wand. He takes away his power. And when that happens, it's an incredible scene. Voldemort just explodes. He just blows apart into a million little pieces. On the cross, Jesus Christ disarmed all of the forces of oppression, violence, and injustice, not by blowing them apart, but by being blown apart. The cross is the the one true story, the only story of a God who disarms all the forces of oppression and violence in this world, not by wielding power against them, but by laying power down. Jesus, the one true cosmic king of creation, the one who holds all things together on the cross, he was blown apart so that he could bring all things back together. Dear ones, the cross is the beginning of reconciliation. And one day, the one day we all long for, Jesus promises that he will return and he will reweave all of material creation back into one perfectly reconciled cosmos. Paul doesn't just call him the firstborn of creation. Notice he calls him the firstborn from the dead. That means the resurrection. But it's not just the resurrection of Jesus. He's the firstborn. That means more to come. Jesus, it's not just the resurrection of Jesus. It means he is the firstborn, the resurrection of the whole cosmos, the resurrection of all things. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're exploring Christianity, then understand this story is a story in which you have to deal with Jesus. You have to deal with Jesus because the story isn't just, he's not just a character in the story. The story is Jesus. It's all about Jesus. You have to deal with Jesus. Listen, it is good and right that we would ask the hard questions, that we would ask the probing questions of Christianity. What about evil and suffering? What about the hypocrisy of Christians? Those are important questions. We have to answer those questions. But eventually, we can get to a point where all of our questions end up becoming nothing more than a smokescreen, a way of keeping Jesus at arm's length so that we just continue asking these intellectual abstract questions because we don't want to deal with the reality of who Jesus is because eventually we get to a point where we have to stop asking the questions and answer the question that Jesus is asking you. And it's a question that is not just addressed to your mind intellectually. It's addressed to your heart and it's addressed to your will. And Jesus asks every single one of us the question, who do you say that I am? The story is about Jesus. Are you dealing with Jesus? But secondly, if you are a Christian here this morning, are you following him with your whole life? You know, this story tells us the story about a God who doesn't divide the world into a spiritual realm and then a material realm, and then say, I'm a God who only cares about the spiritual realm. No, it's a story about a God who says, I created both realms, and I am reconciling both realms. That means that Jesus is not just a private Lord over your private spiritual experience. He is a profoundly public Lord who cares about all creation and is reconciling and renewing all of creation. That means that that He wants all of your life. You give all of your life to him. He's not just Lord of your private prayer life or your private uh, piety. That means that that he wants all of you, that, that, that he is Lord of your thoughts and your emotions and your desires. 
that he is Lord of your, your body and your work and your money and your family and your home. He's Lord of your sexuality, of your ambitions, of your politics, of the words that come out of your mouth. He's Lord of everything. That means that we have to bring our lives inside of his kingship in order to really follow him. Unless and until that happens, our lives will always be falling apart. But to the extent that we bring our lives inside of Jesus' king, kingship, it pulls our lives together. There's an internal coherence in our lives. It doesn't mean that we don't experience hard, difficult things in the world. We'll talk about that more in a couple of weeks. But it does mean that there begins to become an internal coherence in your life. Jesus brings all things together. And listen, lastly, this is something we do in community. We'll talk about this more in weeks to come. But because Jesus is a public Lord, not just a private Lord, but a public Lord, that means that following him is something we do in public as part of a body of Christians, as part of a, a community of other Christians. Friends, the story of everything, the real story of everything is the story of Jesus. He is the story. He is the Lord. Is he your story today? Is he your Lord today? The more that story gets inside of you, the more that story comes out of you. Let's pray.